Good morning, my spooky loves, my mistresses and masters of darkness. Today, I'm continuing the Salem episode, so this is your warning once again. It's dark and horrific, children are involved, people are just the worst. Enjoy! Hello, goblins and ghouls, and welcome to My Haunted Life podcast, the podcast all about the history behind your favorite paranormal stories. I'm your host, Angela Hartjorn. How is everyone doing today? I hope you are staying warm and cozy and safe wherever you are. A little bit of housekeeping before we get going today. My goal is to have the website updated this weekend and probably more like Monday, but that's coming. I'm also in talks to get an updated logo from a very wonderful artist. I'm so excited. Keep an eye out. I'll be posting on it. Don't worry. Very excited. It also appears that the monetization from Ab ads has stopped on anchor i don't know i could be just doing something wrong none of us would be surprised by that so if you like what you hear and want to support the show please subscribe to the patreon page and you can support the show for as little as two dollars a month and you will also have my eternal gratitude but hey no ads until that gets fixed, I guess. that That's kind of cool. I know I'm supposed to be preparing for spring equinox, but it's so hard when it's like five degrees out and snowing. But boxes for those that shop with me at Heart and Horn are coming. Other than that, though, There will not be another shop update until I get back from Norman. This week, I'm doing the Colorado Springs Moon Market at Cronk Art and Curiosities. Then at the end of the month, I'll be in Dallas for the Oddities and Curiosities Expo. And then in Norman for the Medieval Fair, the beginning of April. It's like literally the first weekend. So, if you have any recommendations of where to go, what to see, probably most importantly, what to investigate. Actually, I take that back. What to eat is probably the most important, but you know what I mean. Let me know. Comment on something. All that. Send me an email. Whatever. On this week's episode, I'm continuing my interview with Rachel Christone, Director of Education of the Salem Witch Museum. The second part has become the most requested episode ever. Like, there's been a few where I do, like, the parts and I'll have a couple friends write me being like, Hey, that was really good. When's the next one? That sort of thing. This one 
compounded is the best word I can give you. It, I'm, that being said, it's a great interview and I love it. It, I'm still speechless over the fact that I got the Salem Witch Museum on my podcast. Anyways, it's great. And the second part is just as good as the first. I will recommend, however, if you have not listened to the first, go back and listen to that. Because it might get confusing real quick. So, let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea. Make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by. I have a story to tell you. I I know we're going to talk about Giles because we have to. Um, But I wanted to ask, too, with going back to, like, Rebecca a little bit, what is the evidence? What what evidence is there out there for them to even be put on trial, I guess? I, I know it's a little bit different with the circumstantial evidence now, but did they have evidence? Because I know, like, with Bridget Bishop, it gets really questionable. Right. So... This is another one of those places where the Salem witch trials are unlike anything before in the English colonies because the evidence they're using is kind of sketchy, even for the time. So the primary evidence that's used during the Salem witch trials is something called spectral evidence. Mm -hmm. So the spectral evidence is basically based on the idea that a witch is theoretically capable of projecting a ghostly version of themselves beyond their physical body that can travel, uh, you know, large distances and can attack people. And the only people who can see those specters are the people who the specter is targeting. So that sounds crazy to us today. And it sounded crazy to people in the 17th century. A lot of people didn't believe spectral evidence should be used um, because the way that that would play out in a courtroom is an afflicted witness will fall to the ground screaming and saying, I see Rebecca Nurse up on the rafters, you know, floating around. You can't see her, but I can, and that's how I know she's a witch. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously almost impossible to disprove. Um, so the, that had never been used in an English court of law before 1692. It's never used again after. And it's, again, it's got a lot to do with the special circumstances. They don't have a charter. They're kind of, uh, even when they get a new charter, there's, kind of legal chaos, they have to rewrite their laws and reelect officials, they make this emergency court to handle the cases. So spectral evidence is the big evidence that's being used against, it's the primary evidence used for conviction. Okay. Uh, some people have other things against them, like uh, they discover a poppet in their mm-hmm. home or something like that, um, but that's, that's really not the primary evidence being used for most people. So like, for example, Rebecca Nurse, she's convicted by spectral evidence. And people protested it really throughout the trials. Ministers wrote letters. uh, Influential men of the colony wrote letters urging the court not to use the spectral evidence. But they use it anyway. And unfortunately, as a result, 19 people are hanged. Do you think possibly, because a lot of the women, girls coming up and saying they can see the spectral evidence, is it because they were they listened to because they came from... I should say, I don't want to say higher class families, but more well-to-do kind of situation? Not necessarily. Okay. I think that the spectral 
cultural evidence is it's really much a reflection of this time. We have mm. to remember that 1692 is really on the brink of the scientific revolution and the age of enlightenment. People are becoming more and more interested in, um, you know, uh, what's the word we're looking for here? In, in evidence and in being able mm-hmm. to prove something, uh, being able to prove witchcraft. Uh, and there's a fancy word that I'm totally missing right now, but you, you get my drift. You know, <laughs> yeah. this is the kind of broader world in which we're living. So in 1692, this is the fight that's going on between the intellectual elite. You know, how do you prove someone's a witch? Um, and that is something that there's a lot of arguments about. You know, the ministers feel one way, you know, uh, but uh, maybe a different minister feels a different way. And there's arguments about whether or not the devil can take on the shape of an innocent person. How can you prove that? Uh, so basically, the chaos of this and the uh, intensity of the accusation, so many people are now being accused of witchcraft. Jails are starting to fill with suspects. And really, the evidence that's being used against most of these people is spectral evidence. So without that spectral evidence, the the cases have to be dropped. And you have to think about it as uh, the writings of the men who were there at the beginning make it seem like they really did believe there were witches in the community and they were scared and they were trying to do the right thing and in trying to do the right thing made a huge mistake. So... Um, that's it's again a part of it is contextualizing the witch trials of their time you know we we tend to write off the witch trials as those dumb barbaric puritans <laughs> so silly they believed in witches but honestly it's a very sophisticated process that's going on and uh it's something that you know it's this formula we see happening today that's what we end our museum with you know the uh pattern of behavior that we see happening in the film witch trials doesn't end in 1692 we Mm -hmm. treat people very similarly you know today in this very day and age you know this is something that is not relegated to the 17th century no and i I, again if anybody can go to the museum there's it's gorgeous the the back and oh it hurts your heart um it should it's history uh i wanted to backtrack because i didn't realize martha was in between here was martha accused by Giles. So that's another one of those kind of misconceptions. These okay. are kind of. So <laughs> formally, no. So my coworker, assistant education director, calls Martha and Giles Corey the Bickersons. Because uh, by all accounts, they're kind of this older, grumbly married couple. Um, so when Martha is first accused of witchcraft, again, nobody knows that the Salem witch trials are about to erupt the, the way that they do, you know. Witch trials did not get out of hand in the colonies, typically. So Martha's accused of witchcraft. She is brought in. And Giles is heard to speak to kind of his, you know, friends and neighbors and say, yeah, you know, maybe she is a witch. There's weird stuff that happens in our house. Uh Um, But again, it kind of feels when you read that testimony more like just an older, grumpy man complaining about his wife, you know. (laughs) Um, And when push comes to shove, he never, yeah, exactly. He never testifies against her. He never actually gives uh, evidence before a court of law against her. And it feels like he's supportive of her. When she's arrested, she's transferred from the Salem jail to the Boston jail. And he travels with her up until um, they have to get on a ferry to go to Boston. Um, so he gets all the way up to the ferry, and then he can't cross because he doesn't have the money. So uh, that, to me, reads as a husband who's devoted to her. You know, so 
Oh. It's one of those things where it's a lot of reading between the lines, but I don't think he ever really intended to implicate her as a witch. I think it was a stupid comment that he had no idea would take on such a deadly consequence. Oh, that that hurts my heart too because he like I know. historically he he's not looked at very well. Yeah, so if we look at before 1692, he's not a great guy, to be honest. He uh, beat a servant very severely years before, and the servant dies. Oh, my God. Uh, now, in the 17th century, beating servants and yeah. your wife is, honestly, that happens a lot. It's yeah. part of the culture. It's very upsetting for us now, and it's very easy for us to say those horrible men. Um, but that was part of the culture. It mm-hmm. was normal. So we have to remember different time, different socially accepted standards. Uh, but Giles went too far in this case, and he beat someone literally to death. Oh um, so that's bad, obviously. Yeah. You know, that doesn't read as a uh, super kind-hearted, lovely man. So, you know, this is, but again, these are real people. They have sordid histories. Mm-hmm. You know, they've made mistakes in the past, and by the time they get to 1692, you know, it's that's what sheds light on the rest of their, uh, you know, their past. So Giles, is a, he's definitely not a saint. He's not a, um, you know, perfect person, but he definitely doesn't deserve what happens to him in 1692 as well. Because, I mean, we're going to jump around a lot, um, but he's the one that's famous for being crushed to death. Yes. Yeah, so that is the torture that is used, again, when he re- basically refuses to acknowledge the authority of the court. They use this very unusual method of torture, which was technically illegal, had never been used before this, never used again after this in the English colonies as well. It had been used in England, uh, but very rarely. So uh, he is taken to a open field, stones are laid on his chest, um, and he is ultimately crushed to death. Um, and this is just a couple of days before Martha is set to be executed. So she's she's hanged a couple of days later. Oh. Yeah, very sad. Oh, their whole now I'm like now I want to go back and like reread everything because <laughs> uh, for the whole month of March I'm doing Salem stories and I'm doing the whole curse of Giles Corey later, and now I'm like I feel like I have to go back and look at all my research because I'm like okay he was a jerk but not as bad as I thought he was. Right. Well, and, and then kind of worse. Throw my two cents in about the curse of Giles Corey. Yes, please, please, that please. Is please. One of those myths. That is definitely not true. <laughs> there, it is so made up by somebody in the 20th century. It is hilarious. Uh, you know, there's a lot of crazy things about the Salem witch trials, mm-hmm. but that one is, we know exactly who made it up and when. So Ooh. they always have to throw that in. <laughs> Can I ask who and when? I would love to know this. So let's see. It's, what's his name? Robert. It's not Cahill. Um, so he's a okay. folklorist, and uh, he, he's writing books uh, about folklore and folk tales in the 20th century, and he writes this elaborate story about how all the sheriffs of Salem yes. since Giles Corey's time have died, and that's also not true. There's a couple of, uh, in a row, of um, sheriffs dying in the, of heart disease at some point or another, but that's, it's not like you can trace every person from 1692 to the modern day. And um, the whole story is based on the idea that 
when Giles is being pressed to death, he says to the sheriff, I curse you in all of Salem. Mm -hmm. There is no evidence to suggest he said that. There's not, it's not in any primary source documents. The first time you see that is in the 20th century with Robert Cahill. And we also have to think logically, if a man is being crushed to death, is he going to be able to form that full of a sentence? Probably not. So. Oh. Then, okay, that's more research for me. That's a your child, Corey, myth bubble, but there's no. so many better stories about the Salem Witch Trials, and that one just lingers on. Oh, that's... Okay, I might have to, like... We might have to be doing some more emailing here um, <laughs> later, because I'm like, yeah, I have all this information about Giles, because it's just one of those stories. Like you said, it just lingers, yep. and it keeps going. Yep. and I don't... It's everywhere, you know, and it's such a good story, but it's it's so... Again, if you really look into it, it's so clearly made up. And the Salem Witch Trials, there are so many things, so many stories from the Salem Witch Trials that are not made up, Mm -hmm. like truth being stranger than fiction, that it's kind of silly that someone went to the length to make up a story like that, you know? Okay, yeah, we're going to be talking after this again. Um, (laughs) So, going back to a non- accurate beginning what is it got or got got so like the curse of giles Corey, this is one of those things that has just stuck with the salem witch trials and won't go away <laughs> uh, essentially in the 1970s a young woman writing a paper for her undergraduate degree proposes that maybe the affliction the strange behavior of the sick girls is caused by ergot poisoning Okay. So ergot is a fungus that grows on rye or wheat. Essentially, if you ingest it, it will have a psychotropic effect, similar to if you took LSD, you know, Mm -hmm. you'll see hallucinations. It'll also make you very physically ill. It's a toxin. It's a low-key poison. Yeah. So it's not a good thing to ingest. So they're saying maybe that's why uh, they thought they were seeing specters and things like that. So because this is being proposed in the 1970s and LSD is, uh, you know, very much on everyone's mind, this gets picked up in the media and is splashed across every news outlet across America. Now, meanwhile, the historians of the Salem Witch Trials write a response paper saying that doesn't make sense if we really look at the trials. Because if it was something like ergot, uh, ergot, this is something that is in your bread, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody in the household is eating the same bread, same grain supply. Why would just one or two people per house come down with the affliction? It would be everyone. And then the affliction hops from house to house. You see one person afflicted, maybe two people, miles and miles away, another person. Uh, you know, so if it was uh, you know, something on your bread, it doesn't make sense in the initial affliction or how the affliction spreads from there. So the historians discredit the theory immediately. However, again, because this gets picked up, these headlines across the U.S. are saying moldy bread causes Salem witch trials, and that's it. It will stick. It has stuck from that moment on. Um, so wow. to this day in documentaries, in books, in uh, film and podcast, you'll hear people saying the ergot theory could, you know, ergot could have caused the Salem witch trials. And um, again, that's one of those things where when you keep digging in, you'll find the historian's response. But it's such a nice 
explanation. You know, yep, it was just something in their bread that caused this weird behavior. Mm -hmm. Great, all said and done. It would be nice if it was this kind of simple explanation, but unfortunately, it's not what happened in Salem. But gosh darn it, it's going to linger in pop culture until the end of time. I literally did an art print with the the witch house and pieces of wheat for that reason. That is am- and it's funny. Uh, my friend Kayla, who helps with the podcast, she, we went to high school together. And when I posted the or shared the picture about it, mm-hmm. she's like, "I remember learning that yep. with you yep. in class." Like, you would be surprised how many teachers teach the area theory. Mm-hmm. I work with students a lot who are doing projects about the film witch trials, and without fail, every time I will be asked the ergot question and most of the time they don't know that it's been disproven they'll say it as yep that's the truth and the you know the truth of the matter is again it requires digging into the subject to see the historian's response you know Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of places that don't do the full research or teachers who are just trying to you know get through the curriculum they'll just see it and just say yep okay that's one of the possible answers you know and that's no comment on the teachers that's just you know, the fact of the matter, it's one of those things that it's been said in so many places that uh, you have to take that extra step in to disprove it, and a lot of people don't, or to read that it has been disproven. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like even you watch stuff on the History Channel still. Yep. They talk about Erga, and it's like, wait, what? It's like, I went to school to be a a secondary history teacher, but more modern history, and yeah, I didn't know that. And yep. a lot of people don't, and that's, you know, that's part of, uh, you know, our jobs as a, um, you know, an educator to the public about the Salem Witch Trials. This is one of those things that uh, it will, I think, follow us until the end of time. You know, it's always going to be regurgitated as a possible truth. Uh, Margot huh. Burns, who's a historian of the Salem Witch Trials, has a phenomenal lecture about the Aragot theory and how it started and how, why it blew up and you know, how it lingers to this day. So if you ever see her speaking anywhere listed as a speaker, her name's Margot Burns. Phenomenal lecture about this topic. I'm totally going to look that up because, yeah, I'm, I'm just like... <laughs> She's great. I, I've done research. Like I said, I love this. And when you said that, I was like, what? Well, now I just yeah. feel <laughs> dumb. Um, I feel lied to. Because <laughs> I'm just... It, it's Again, it's just one of those... Huh. Because really, how much... It's always one of those things that the ones that were accused of being witches weren't really actually witches. Yes. It was just, like, a fear of witches that took over. Yep, yep. And, like, there's there's the folk magic aspect, but everybody kind of did a little yep, bit. Exactly. It was exactly. just a, a cultural thing. Um, right. Like, same thing with, like, folk, I don't want to say healing, but... Right. You know, little, little, you know, yep. eat this moldy piece of bread, I'll make you feel better kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, that's so funny. I'm just like, I feel light too. Um, <laughs> I know, it's okay. It's, everybody has the same reaction. <laughs> but it's my thing that You're really... You're not alone. It's just, what? Um, I also want to say, I'm really sorry if you hear weird scraping outside. They're out trying to, like, clear the parking lot and it's a horrible noise and I'm really sorry and I don't know how to edit that out. 
I can't hear it, so, you know. Score. <laughs> that's good, so hopefully it's not being picked up. <laughs> Just as long as it's not bugging you, I'm okay with that, because it's kind of yeah, awful. I'm good. It's scraping cement. Um, but it's like, I love the ergot idea, but it doesn't explain, like, the hundreds of years of it happening in right, Europe. Right, right. And, and there are examples in Europe that of specific uh, witchcraft accusations that historians can point to Ergot and say maybe that's what was happening. Um, so it's oh. not to say that it, it doesn't link in with witch history to a very, very small degree, but it's not why most witchcraft accusations happen. You know, it's kind of like the question of, are these people really witches? Mm-hmm. Uh, a witch being someone who's made a pact with the devil. The answer is the vast majority, if we look at the history of witchcraft, these people are not trying to summon the devil and mm-hmm. make an oath to him. There may be very, very isolated instances of people who are getting into ritual magic who try to contact a demon or the devil. But that's like one in 40,000, you know? It's, <laughs> it's a very isolated incident. It's not why witch trials happen. It's not why witchcraft accusations happen. So that that's kind of a close comparison with this idea of hallucinogenic bread. Huh. Huh. My heart. Um, <laughs> I did want to bring up one of my other favorite, I guess, victims. Um, Bridget. Because I love Bridget and her poppets. Yeah. And because um, she was just kind of... She was out there doing her own thing. Right, right. So, can you tell us about Miss Bridget? Yeah, so she she uh, is kind of in, we could say, our list of mouthy women. <laughs> um, so there's, there's quite a few women who are accused of witchcraft during the Salem trials who you just kind of love because, because of the way that they handle their accusations where they just say, look, I'm not a witch and this is crazy. You know, mm-hmm. they talk back to the magistrates. So Bridget's one of those people that she is just, she seems to be a strong woman. Um, So Bridget is born in England. Um, She moves to uh, the colonies. She's had three husbands by 1692. She's married to her third husband. Wow. Um, And she's been in trouble before 1692. She's been suspected of witchcraft before. Oh. Uh, And again, she fits that profile of, you know, kind of classic witchcraft accusations mm-hmm. uh, because she's a she pushes against social norms so uh, she is a woman who is known to she would talk back to her husband she would fight her husband her husband would hit her there are I mean, that's documented but she would hit him back yes. um, and they were both in trouble for fighting with each other openly um, so she is kind of clearly this strong independent woman mm-hmm. she also might have been a petty thief is kind of a oh. one theory where things kind of small trinkets would disappear around her and who knows if that's true or if those are just stories uh people have but there are quite a few stories of you know like a small piece of whatever lace disappearing you know or uh you got a coins from her put them in her po- your pocket and then they disappeared hmm. things like that um, so who knows if she's she's just kind of like stealing things on the side or if people just wanted to dislike her. Um, mm-hmm. It's unclear, but she had been accused of witchcraft, um, or she had at least been suspected of witchcraft before Salem, and she'd been in court for having these fights with her husband and things like that. Wow. So she is the first person to be tried by the court of Oyer and Terminer, the emergency court set up to deal with the witchcraft trial. Oh, okay. This and is before she, uh, the charger. The charter came in, right? 
The new so one. This is after. This oh, okay. Charter has arrived, and they kind of swap together an emergency court that's going to deal with the witchcraft trial. Okay. And this court is essentially told, do what you think is best. You know, follow, <laughs> follow English precedent, but, like, you know, do what you think the situation warrants. And that's why they allow spectral evidence to be used. So, Bridget is very intentionally chosen as the first person to be tried by the court of Oyer and Terminer because she's an easy case, mm-hmm. you know, that she's had the suspicion before. They search her house. They find poppets. Uh, a lot of people are willing to come forward and testify against her. So it's, it's she's a pretty easy person to convict for witchcraft. Interestingly, though, she is, um, you know, tried, convicted, executed. But then one of the magistrates who sat on the court of Oyer and Terminer, uh, Nathaniel Saltonstall, he leaves the court after she's executed. Now, we don't know in the records why, but it seems like he's um, he was arguing against spectral evidence and felt as though he's protesting the court by leaving after her execution. Oh, uh, wow. He's, the, he's the only magistrate to leave the court during the witchcraft trials. Wow. Okay. So he, the, Yeah, he's one of the, huh. you know, not heroes in the story, but people that you can see... You can think, at least hope, that they're trying to do the right thing or, you know, understand that what's going on is wrong and mm-hmm. trying to do something about it. How old was Bridget about? Do we know? Off the top of my head, I want to say she's in her 40s or okay. 50s. I would have to go back and look, but she's somewhere around there. This is her third husband, so, um, you know, she's, like, middle-aged approximately. Okay. Uh, I, I also wanted to ask, because I always was taught with her, some of the evidence against her were men saying that they dreamt of her? Yeah, so uh, a couple of men say that they've been visited by the specter of Rebecca Nurse in their sleep and she, you know, pressed upon them. So we can say, you know, you can speculate, was she an attractive woman and Mm -hmm. they're like fantasizing about her? Maybe that also we have to remember this idea that specters came to you in the night and like haunted, you know, pressed on you or tormented you in some way. That was a normal accusation. She's not the only person to be accused of that. Okay. Um, so, you know, it, it's one of those things where you can make an argument either way. Uh, she is confused with another person, though. Uh, Bridget Bishop is na- married to a man whose name is Edward Bishop. And another person accused of witchcraft, whose name is Sarah Bishop, is also married to an Edward Bishop. Oh, geez. So, in the historical record, Bridget and Sarah get confused sometimes. So, if you've ever heard the story that uh, Bridget owned an unlicensed tavern, and she's a tavern keeper, that's actually Sarah Bishop. It's not Bridget. And that's something that didn't get untangled until the 20th century. Whoa! We had them confused in the record for years. And it's because in records, a person is just being called Goody Bishop, married to Edward Bishop, and it took a lot of contextual unpacking to realize which one was which. Because the name Goody is just kind of like Mrs. sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's If you're uh, of the upper class, you're called Mistress. And everybody else is called Goody or Good Wife. So. Or Goodman, if you're a man. I'm like, wait, Bridget's not the one that owned the tavern. Yes, she did not. She owned uh, Apple Orchard. Yes, okay. Uh, but she does not own an unlicensed tavern. 
Tavern. Okay. That is Sarah Bishop. And Sarah Bishop is a whole other interesting story where she's doing all kinds of scandalous things. Ooh, um, like what? But, uh, you know, she, she has this tavern, and there's this story about she um, fights with a neighbor and so scares this neighbor that the neighbor kills themselves. Like, that. she's oh my God. a crazy, sordid past, yeah. Um, and to come full circle, Sarah and Edward Bishop are actually the ones who end up taking care of Ann Dolliver, the woman who lived where our museum is today, uh, who was mentally unwell. Aww. She uh, is entrusted to the care of Sarah and Edward Bishop by her father when her father is uh, you know, unable to take care of her anymore because he's older. So she goes off to live with them and moves to Rehoboth. So that's a, you know, wow. a kind of full circle there. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um. Yeah, I'm like, that's another one. Now that's changed for me too. I love talking to you. This is amazing. Oh my god, you have no idea. Um, good, good. I love all of it. Um, uh, I wanted to talk about the Proctors because they're kind of, they're always considered like the heroes of the story. You know, well, sad heroes, sort of in a, of the story in a weird way. So, can you tell us about them? So the Proctors are a family that they live in what is today Peabody at the time. Peabody. Called Salem. Um, so Elizabeth Proctor is in that early group to be accused. She's around the same time as Martha Corey and Rebecca Nurse. Um, so her specter is cited. Um, she is brought in and tried or, you know, examined by the court. And during her examination, uh, her husband, John, is kind of in the background, and John has been openly skeptical about the trials. So he's saying the afflicted girls shouldn't be listened to. Uh, uh, his own servant had been afflicted. He'd allowed her to testify, but he's very skeptical, and he um, reportedly beats her, and she comes out of her um, affliction. She's no longer... Uh, afflicted anymore. What? Um, he is kind of heard uh, telling his neighbors, if you beat the devil out of them, they're fine. You know, you just hit them and they won't be afflicted anymore. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. So, um... Oh, my God. So, that's John Proctor. He, again, you know, co- controversial for the time. Or, I guess, regular for the time. Kind of controversial looking back. Yeah. Um, but he's... The important part is he's skeptical about the trial. So, his wife is accused. She's brought in. And during her examination, the afflicted witnesses say they also see the specter of John. And he is arrested there and brought in with his wife as well. Um, So the two of them are both convicted of witchcraft. John is executed, but Elizabeth survives because she's pregnant. Mm. So she is granted a stay of execution. Theoretically, she's supposed to be executed. So they say, we're going to wait until you deliver your baby because the baby is innocent. And then after that, you're going to be executed. Which, you know, we can only imagine what her experience in jail was like. Whole other level of horror. Yeah. Um, But luckily, she is, um, she's not scheduled for execution until February of 1693. There was actually supposed to be another date of execution. Uh, five people, there were still five convictions from the old Court of Oyer and Terminer, which is disbanded in September. A new court is created in January of 1693. That court convicts three people but releases everybody else. They no longer use spectral evidence. So those people, the older five and the new three, are supposed to be executed. And then the governor steps in and says, we're done, no more executions, you're all free to go, I issue a, you a reprieve. Mm. Um, 
So that's really what we can say stops the Salem witch trials, and that's what saves Elizabeth's life, because she was still supposed to be executed in um, February. And she's not the only pregnant woman. Uh, Abigail Faulkner is the same story. She's also pregnant, is mm. issued a stay of execution. She's supposed to be executed in February, and she lives because of the last-minute reprieves. Wow. Yeah, the story really has it all in terms of oh. terrible tragedy. Right? Uh, I, I wanted to ask, so they're pregnant, and the babies are considered innocent, but what about the transferring of the 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 witchcraft thing like we were talking about earlier with, I believe, Dorothy, who was the four-year-old? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, they, they look at it as the unborn child is innocent. I mean, maybe uh, that child will grow up to be a witch, but, you know, they, they can't determine that in, in utero. You know, the child okay. still has a chance, theoretically. Okay. So, a little... their mother is executed, you know, is has been accused of witchcraft, that does to make them more vulnerable to a witchcraft accusation later on. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that child will be considered to be a witch. Okay, a little a little nurture versus nature kind of yeah, vibe exactly. going on. Okay. Um, uh, I also wanted to ask, before I let you go, because um, I know we're, I've kept you for a bit, and I'm sorry, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> okay. uh, but I wanted to ask about where are the gallows? Because this has been a big thing. For many years, because I know there's the Gallows Hill area, and then, right. what was it, like 10, 15 years ago, they think they found, or less than that, I think, where they found where yeah. the actual gallows were. What is, do we have an update on total random yeah, so sidebar? That's, <laughs> so that's one of those things that... Um, We didn't know for sure where the hangings had taken place um, until quite recently. Um, So popular legend said they happened in this specific area, which is called Gallows Hill, which is kind of like a big hill and the outskirts of Salem. Um, So that was, the you know, it's been called Gallows Hill. That's the popular lore. Uh Now, again, this is actually one of those cases of something that we knew but have forgotten and relearned. So, in the early 20th century, a uh, Salem historian had figured out where the hangings took place, and he'd wrote a little article about it and said, they don't take place on top of Gallows Hill, they take place on a, um, a little ways down that hill in an area called Proctor's Ledge. Okay. Uh, and this is why. Now, that, for some reason, is kind of just swept, no, it doesn't really um, solidify into the literature of the Salem Witch Trials. So it disappears. So we still have this kind of, for years, questions of, we think it happened around Gallows Hills. That's a popular tradition. We don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. So a couple of years ago, a group of historians came together to figure out exactly where the hangings took place. And it's because one historian, whose name is Marilyn Roach, found this old uh newspaper article that reported where the hangings took place and she was she so she has this piece of evidence and then she also found this line in a document that said um it basically uh this uh, jailer was taking a person to jail and stopped in a house uh, to see the executions, and they reported that from that house they could look up and see the executions taking place. So we know where that house is. Uh, you know, we could determine where that was based on deeds. So this group of historians 
put all these pieces together and figured out that if you were standing where that house was in 1692, looking up, Proctor's Ledge would have been visible, which is what Sidney Purley, this 20th century historian, had said all along. So they, uh, you know, officially make this consensus that the hangings took place in this spot. So again, kind of on Gallows Hill, it's just a lower down point on that hill. Uh-huh. It's literally right behind where a Walgreens yes! is today in the middle of a residential neighborhood. Um, so, and there is a memorial erected there for the 19 people who were hanged today. Uh, that memorial was erected in, I believe, 2017. So it's it's a spot that's kind of hard to get to, again, because it's like on the outskirts of Salem in the middle of a residential neighborhood. But there is now a memorial there for people who want to walk all the way over there and see it. Okay, because I remember we got to wander through. It was like right after they first were like, okay, this is where it was. And yeah. probably trespassed through somebody's yard. And... Uh, just wanted to like make out you could tell kind of where they had been digging and checking it out and i was like oh this is really cool and but there wasn't a marker because i right i think they had put one up temporarily and they just got a huge influx of tourists and they they like took it down or something and then i think they put another one back up i haven't been out there in a few years but yeah the city kind of doesn't discourage people to go over there again because it's a residential neighborhood Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's nowhere to park around there so (laughs) if you're really dedicated you can walk from salem to there and see it um but we we do have uh so we have an online site store on our website uh and there is a picture of proctor's ledge on that site store so you can see what it looks like and kind of see the surrounding area that way yeah, I just you can do it from anywhere, which is the added bonus. See, I like that because we try to figure it out by uh, finding all the Walgreens and yeah, like yeah. figuring out which Walgreens looked right in the picture. So, so we now you want to talk about again proof stranger than fiction? Yes. This is again the reason why we get so frustrated when people make up ghost stories because <laughs> so that spot right there, right next to that Walgreens, is where the hangings took place. And then fast forward to the early 20th century, there's an enormous fire in 1914 that wipes out like half of Salem. Thousands of people lose their homes. It's the most physically destructive event in Salem's history. Wow. And that fire broke out in the same spot that the hangings took place, right at that intersection. So if you want to talk about a cursed intersection, that's got to be it. So, um, you know, again, you can't make that stuff up. The two events in Salem's history that are arguably the most destructive happened in almost exactly the same spot. Oh, see, that's good. Yeah, right? That's why you don't make up ghost stories. (laughs) That's so good. That's so much better. Right, right, and then Robert Cahill comes in and makes up a ghost story a couple years later, and we're like, come on, man. Uh, so, I'm, like, okay. like, I'm like, you need to write that down, I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> so I have to ask, what is your favorite, like, quote-unquote ghost story for the, of the trials, or Salem in general? So that might be my favorite story, just because it's one of those things that, you know, you really do, like, I don't really believe in ghosts okay. and stuff like that, um, but, you know, oh. you go through that intersection and you do feel a chill. I recently went into that Walgreens for the first time, uh, because I, my husband and I were in the area and needed a mask, uh, we needed to buy masks, and I was like, I don't want to go into the Walgreens, and, you know, <laughs> I, I have purposefully stayed away from there for years, because it's a creepy intersection to me. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one of those things that, uh, it's definitely one of my favorite 
stories uh, from the trials in terms of spookiness because really you just can't make that stuff up. No, that's... Or you can, but it's crazy that it's not fake. It is 100% true. And that's that's one of those weird ones. It's like, why was that never connected? That's a good one. I like that. Right, right, right. Again, you know, why make up a ghost story when the real things that happened are so haunting in and of themselves? What are Corey's ghosts? Yeah, I was gonna ask. Is that the the fire? Was that one of the ones that Giles Corey Corey was supposedly seen? Yeah, the harbinger appeared and warned people about or whatever. That again. There's no evidence to suggest that happened. That really comes from the imagination of Robert Cahill. That is so amazing. Um, I have to look more of this up. Because I might just do a whole podcast just based off of, it's not real. I'm all for that. Yep. I mean, honestly, it's I one love of those that. things that the more people who hear it, the better. It's like the ergot theory. You know? mm-hmm. Get that. You know, it's, it's an interesting story to hear the fake story behind it you know it's, it's one of those things you're going to hear so people need to understand why it's not true that yeah i i again so many of us were like what and there were a lot of people who wrote yeah. me privately because they didn't want to comment on it publicly going really yeah. i'm like oh my god i love you guys um <laughs> what are some of the other weird stories you would like to share because I, I'm learning so much from you, and this is just so much fun. So the only other one that really comes to mind is um, Sarah Good, again, okay. with Sarah Good. But um, when she is executed, she's standing on the gallows, and Nicholas Noyes, who's the junior minister in Salem, is trying to get her to confess to, you know, save some of her soul, you know. Um, he's imploring her to confess to being a witch, and she says to him, I am not a witch, um... And, uh, you know, if you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink, which Ooh. is a reference to, I believe, the Bible. And um, and she is executed anyway. And as the story goes, uh, this is not 100% confirmed, but there's a lot more contemporary evidence to suggest, or at least evidence close to the event to suggest it's true, that when Nicholas Noyes dies years later, he dies of a brain hemorrhage and chokes on blood. So, oh. and that's the inspiration for Nathaniel Hawthorne's, uh, he, he, that story is um, featured in, I believe, The House of the Seven Gables, the uh-huh. Nathaniel Hawthorne story. Um, so that, again, that's one of those stories that there's a lot more evidence to suggest it actually happened, and if it did, that's crazy. So it, it's definitely wow. got more truth behind it than the ghost of Giles Corey, this idea that he chokes oh to death God. on blood. That's good. Uh, I also want to ask about the uh, Hawthorne's real quick, because... They're kind of important. We haven't even mentioned them. Um, well, the the one without the E to start with for the trials. Because um, he's the one that lived in the witch house. Well, what is now the witch house, correct? So, uh, Hathorne didn't live in what is now the witch house. That was Corwin, who's another uh, magistrate. Okay. Hathorne lived pretty close by. His house actually was approximately where the Bewitch statue stands today. Oh. So around in that approximate area. Um, and he is the, I believe, great-grandfather of Nathaniel Hawthorne, who adds the W back in the name, uh, who famous, he's one, another one of those extremely famous people from Salem. He writes the House of the Seven Gables, mm-hmm. the Scarlet Letter, he's, um, and his, the house that inspired the House of the Seven Gables, which I believe was owned by his cousin, 
um, still stands today and is an operational historic house museum in Salem, which is another must-see if you ever come to Salem. That was one we didn't do, and it's on my list. Along with the Hocus Pocus tour, because we didn't do that either. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm just like so... I'm like overwhelmed, not gonna lie. I'm like, I don't even know how to end this. I just want to keep talking to you the rest of the day and just like find other weird stories. And I didn't realize there were so many poppets because I love poppets. Poppets are so much fun to me. Um, poppets are so much fun. They're I love them. I make little yeah. ones with my other business and I, I love them. They're fun. They're sweet. They're not totally scary, but. Uh, yeah, there's just an interesting thing, you know, just to, in the modern day for sure. Yeah. And back then as well. Uh, can I ask you real quick, do you know, like, the folk magic side of puppets in that time? Because, you know, everything changes over time. So it's an English folk magic tradition, and what I know about it is it's, it's considered sympathetic magic. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea that um, a witch could take this puppet and... Uh, you know, twisted or stick pins in it or whatever, and that could hurt another person. Um, you know, again, there's not a, um, during the Salem witch trial, the only person who confessed to making puppets, um, to my knowledge, who may have actually, who I think actually did it, was Ann Dolliver. She says that, like, ten years ago she did, um, and maybe she did. That was a very sad time in her life. She's just been abandoned by her husband. Mm. She has to move back in with her father and a stepmother she seems to hate. And so maybe she did try Aww. to make these poppets. Uh, other people, though, who are, you know, like Bridget Bishop, who mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they discover poppets in her house, seems more like it's probably just a doll or or someone plants it in her house. But, you know, kids also made dolls, you know, yeah. that are little human figures, cornhouse dolls and dolls out of, um, like, cloth and things like that. So the distinction between a cloth or a cornhouse doll and a poppet just has to do with your intention, uh, so again, you could find one of these things in someone's house that was intended to be a doll and set claim it's a poppet, and there there becomes a scandal there. But normally, that wouldn't necessarily get you accused of, you know, or ex- at least executed for witchcraft, Ye- except for you know, in our yeah. strange <laughs> example of Salem. Because I know there was like something with Bridget was making a bunch of them for like Christmas for the kids or something. I shouldn't say I know because. Obviously, you've changed my history so much today, and I love it. I don't know that story, but I'm not going to say it's not true. I wouldn't trust me at this point. (laughs) (laughs) I know they find some, like, in her walls or something like that, or someone had seen them in her walls, people who had worked on her house or something like that. Um, so that's all That's all I know about her poppets, but there okay. could be more. The thing about each person is you can study this event for your entire life and not know all the stories. You yes. know, the, even people like Marilyn Roach, who literally have spent their entire life studying the trials. Sometimes I'll email her a question. I hope she just knows off the top of her head and she'll say, you know, I got to get back to you. I got to look it up. So, you know, it just goes to show you can't know all of it. <laughs> no, I love it. So much. You have no idea how much I appreciate your time today on this very cold, snowy day for both of us, which is kind of fun. Um, No, thank you. The next time I am out there, I am writing you. Totally, you're going to have... Definitely do. We'll we'll go get a beer or something. I don't know. Fabulous. Clearly, we have a lot to talk about. Yes. Oh, my God. I'm, 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 like, still, I'm, like, my mind is, like, bustling with all these questions, and I'm, like... 
I need to let you go. It's already been almost two hours. <laughs> and, oh, real quick, real quick. Why was the charter revoked? So it's got a lot to do with just the politics of England. Okay. So um, basically, I believe it's Charles is the one who, he revokes every all the colonies' charters, all huh. the English colonies' charters. And basically says, I'll give it back to you if you can prove your loyalty. Most people get it back right away, but Massachusetts Bay Colony is this particularly weird case because they had set out and been super independent right away. Their charter was kind of, they had written it in an unusual way. Uh, They've made it so that you you have to be Puritan to be in the colony. That's like a huge part of the way that the government and laws all wrapped in Puritan ideology. Um, and so when the king takes away the charter, he's basically saying, all right, Mass Bay Colony, you guys are getting a little bit too independent, a little bit too big for your britches over there. I'm taking away the charter, and if you can prove your loyalty to me, I'll give it back. And it goes on for years, and there's regime changes in England. The um, Glorious Revolution happens, mm-hmm. which drives the king off the throne, uh, and William and Mary come in, so the uh, charter negotiations that have been going on have to start from scratch, so that makes it a longer process. So hmm. they actually get the charter in 1691, they get it nailed down, but then they have to get on a boat in its months, so they don't actually get it um. on the ground landed in the colony until May of 1692. And they get a new governor along with it, Governor Phipps, who steps off the boat to this witchcraft crisis that is blowing <laughs> up. Uh, so that's Another reason why things kind of, you know, it's it's just chaos. They have to implement a new charter and deal with this. And, you know, one historian has referred to it as the perfect storm, and that's really what it is. Everything goes wrong at exactly the right time. Wow. And on that note. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> just like, <laughs> man. Because there's, it, it's just one of those things. It's, we'll never know why the girls did this really and that i think that's always the hardest part for everybody so everybody wants that right. button up everybody wants that ergot it's easy to explain yep. but i know it's one of those you know. things where until we get that much coveted time machine uh-huh. which we're, we want you know as historians that's the super frustrating part about studying history though is you can really think that you have it figured out and then somebody finds a new piece of information and everybody's back to square one you know it's oh. it's trying to make sense of a puzzle with very scattered essentially uh i just yeah i'm gonna come visit we're gonna hang out it's gonna be awesome um thank you so much again rachel where you are so welcome oh my god this was so much fun uh where can people uh find you and the museum and any other information you can tell us all about Anne again i i want to know everything about her Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, I feel like I did a good job sprinkling in a lot of our, oh. uh, you know, uh, online resources. But yes, again, definitely. Uh, our website has so much uh, educational content that is free. Uh, we have our online sites tour that are, is our assistant education director's baby. She's put so much time and effort into researching that tour. And it's an ongoing project. You know, she's still, this project is going to go on for the rest of her life, which is great. I love <laughs> so, that. Um we also have um, an online exhibit that rotates. Uh, right now it's all about artists' interpretations of witch trials. Um, so we have an ongoing blog with different blog series. So uh, definitely check out our website, which is salemwitchmuseum.com. 
And then our social media is Facebook and Instagram, and it's at Salem Witch Museum. Um, and we post a lot of, uh, you know, kind of different content, stuff about the Salem Witch Trials, about the European Witch Trials, the evolving image of the witch. We, we do a lot, a lot of different things. So, um, yeah, that's the primary place to find us. And we also have these virtual events that are ongoing. Our next one coming up is at the end of March, March 27th, which is this Women's History Day event all about Ann Dolliver. Our next scheduled event that we've announced is Salem Ancestry Days. Uh, so in, uh, what day is it? I think it's May 1st is our virtual event. We're going to have a panel of historians who are descendants. Oh. Uh, so three historians, or three authors, I should say. Two are historians, and one is a fiction author who's amazing. Her books are fantastic. Her name is Kathleen Kent. Uh, the three of them are going to do a panel about um, their ancestors um, and how their ancestry has informed their work and any family stories they have. So that's going to be a super interesting event. Um, and we will have more events scheduled this year. We just haven't announced them yet. So stay tuned. Keep an eye on our social media. Yeah, follow everything. Thank you again. <laughs> so much rachel stay warm and i will we're gonna talk because i want to pick your brain on other stories (laughs) uh thank you so much again you too Bye bye Thank you to everyone out there listening today. A huge thank you to Rachel once again for being on the podcast. I'm I'm still like totally geeking out over the whole experience. I just, I love the Salem Witch Museum. It was one of my favorite things when I was out there. And now I need to go back and see all the updated information because that's really they're still finding stuff. It's just amazing to me and wonderful. Just absolutely a wonderful source. The Salem Witch Museum is on like every social media. Go check it out. It's it's absolutely amazing. I still need to buy my Rebecca Nurse Descendant kit, but as soon as I get it, I will post pictures because I'm I'm so excited. Like I said earlier, the podcast website will be getting updated soon so that's very exciting and all of this information will also be on there how to contact them next week I'll have even more Salem stories I'm contemplating giving you guys hints and the best I could come up with off the top of my head so you know you could definitely tell when I write the podcast and when I improv it because this is a good example, is a house in Salem that isn't really connected to the witch trials. So that might narrow it down a little bit. But it is definitely associated with witches. I think that's going to be next week's almost 100% sure, but I'll let you know. Or we'll all be surprised. We'll see what happens. If you have a ghost story to share, email me at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com and make sure to tell your friends and family about the show. Word of mouth goes a very long, long way. 
please share the podcast. Get it out there. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, go to the Patreon page. I promise to get more things up for that very, very soon. Show prep has killed everything, but I'm working on it. I promise I have not forgotten about you. Music is by Ghost Stories Incorporated. And that's it for this show. I'll see you all next week on my Haunted Life podcast. And until then, stay haunted. Hello goblins and ghouls and welcome to my Haunted Life podcast, the podcast all about the history behind your favorite paranormal stories. I'm your host, Angela Hartshorn.